Father, in these few moments, would you give us insight into this great truth, into this great reality? We thank you, Lord, for how through the singing of songs you've given us opportunity to express faith, to be reminded of promises and truths from your word. Lord, by your spirit, you have drawn us again to your cross, Lord Jesus. And we would pray now that you would give us minds and hearts that are willing and hung hungry and ready to contemplate the death of Jesus Christ. Guide us. Lead us. Grant us understanding. And Lord, we would ask for you to do what only you can do. Would you soften my hardened heart? Would you soften our hardened hearts? And would you give us a glimpse of the glory of the cross and work great faith and understanding and believing for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good Friday. Uh, we, we, we gather this evening in America in 2000. And 22 on a day set aside to remember and to celebrate a man's death. Now, the greatest celebration in our country uh, during a calendar year is this man's birth. I would say in our country, we spend more time and we spend more energy and we spend more money on celebrating Christmas than any other day of the year. And today we gather to celebrate and to remember this man's death. In our country, we, we honor and we celebrate great men from our country. We celebrate their birthdays, Lincoln and, and Washington and Martin Luther King. How peculiar we would celebrate a day when a man died. We would celebrate a day when a man was executed. Think of a national holiday that we would set, a, set aside to celebrate the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yet today we gather to remember this man's death, Jesus Christ. And we call this day good. This man's death, this man's execution is good. Things are different uh, today. Uh, I've had an opportunity at work many, many times this week. Just let me put it out there. Let me see what people do with it. Uh, we've talked many times about uh, Good Friday in years past. I, I grew up, I wasn't in an overly religious home, but on Good Friday from 12 to 3, I was in my house, and my friends weren't with me, and I was quiet for three hours on Good Friday because my mom would remind me that Jesus died on Good Friday. I've spoken with many people this week. My buddy Rich is here, and we've spoken many times in the town of Pittman. Not that many years ago, uh, 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 someone produced signs and placards for all the, the businesses in Pittman to remind people, we are closed from 12 to 3 today. Good Friday, closed from 12 to 3. Places that were open till noon they closed from 12 to 3. They reopened at 3 o'clock. 
because it was Good Friday. And Jesus died on Good Friday, closing stores and closing shops to remember the final three hours of this man's death. My, my message tonight goes along this line. This was no ordinary death. And this was no ordinary man. His death was unlike any death that has ever happened. And I want us to consider from the scriptures tonight the death of Jesus Christ. I want to present a case, if you will, from this text that this was indeed no ordinary death and this was no ordinary man. And I want to call three witnesses, if you will, to the death of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see their perspective on this very special death and this very special day. First witness, verse 44, it was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Jesus was crucified from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., approximately. We have no accurate ways of keeping time. We don't have watches, and we don't have clocks, and we don't have precise time pieces. But at around noon, when the sun was heading to its zenith, darkness descended on the land. The Word of God says that the sun's light failed. Thick darkness. I can't see three feet in front of my hand, three feet in front of my face, darkness. This great dark curtain, if you will, fell on the stage of this great work of salvation. Now, this was no ordinary darkness. This was no eclipse of the sun. It lasted for three hours. It's, it's Passover. It's the time of the full moon, and a full moon is not compatible with an eclipse of the sun. This was a supernatural miracle signifying a supernatural event. There's nothing ordinary or explainable about this darkness. It's never happened before, and it will never happen again. It was testifying to a far greater reality. Now let's just consider this darkness and what this darkness de declares. First, darkness from the Bible is often a symbol of evil. When we read about darkness in the Bible, it's often kind of with evil. Jesus used these words on the night that he was betrayed. When the priests and the leaders and they all, they came out to arrest Jesus just a, a few verses before we re read this evening in Luke chapter 22. They all come out to him and Jesus replied to them, this is your hour, the power of darkness. This is your hour, the, the, the power of evil. Darkness represents and, and symbolizes for us evil. Jesus left the others in the upper room. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One who dips his, his bread with me will betray me. And he leans to Judas and says to him, Judas, what you need to do, you do it quickly. And, and the Bible tells us in John chapter 13, verse 30, that, that very last words from that is that Judas went out and it was night. 
It was darkness. We maybe could present a Christ. The greatest evil that's ever been performed by a human being was performed by Judas Iscariot. He betrayed the very son of God. And when he went to go do that deed, he went out and it was night. It was darkness because it was evil. And darkness represents evil. And this great evil of crucifying the Son of God was done in darkness. For three hours, the entire land, the Word of God says, was, was dark. The most heinous, the most grievous evil ever carried out would be carried out under thick darkness. Darkness also is a sign of sadness. And it's a sign of sorrow. Listen to this pro prophecy from the book of Amos. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. A minor prophet, Amos, on that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like morning, not morning morning, but grieving morning for an only sun. And the end of it like a bitter day. The words of Amos came true the day that Jesus died. The sun turned to darkness unspeakable suffering, unbearable sorrow, the perfect son of God, sinless and full of love, being executed and enduring great suffering on behalf of sinners. He truly was a man of sorrows. He truly was a man familiar with grief. Darkness is a sign of sadness and a sign of sorrow. Darkness in the Bible is also associated with divine judgment. Darkness is associated with divine judgment. This was a day of judgment. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is suffering the wrath of God against human sin. Zephaniah writes, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. Darkness represents God's judgment. And this darkness we see is a supernatural miracle displaying God's wrath on sin. Jesus is bearing our guilt. He is bearing our sin. He's bearing our shame. And that is enough. But he bears more. He, he bears all that that sin and all that that shame and all that that guilt deserves. It deserves the full wrath and the full fury of God's wrath against human sin. Not his sin, our sin. And this darkness demonstrates the Father forsaking the Son, if you will, and pouring out the full fury of the hell that I deserve. Jesus living those last three hours on the cross bore my sin, my guilt, my shame, my wrath. Put yourself there. He bore that, and this darkness bears witness. Stop for a moment.
blackness, darkness, three hours. Can barely see anything in front of us. The act is evil. Evil people performing evil deeds under the cover of darkness. Grief, sorrow. If we're thinking even close to rightly, our hearts should be overwhelmed with grief at how the sinless Savior stands in our place. Judgment. The time has come. Judgment on sin. This is what our sin has caused. This is what we deserve. Look to the Son. Jesus has borne our guilt. He has been judged in our place. God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and by his wounds we are here. God is working out judgment on his Son so that very judgment could be spared by all who would believe. Our first witness is darkness. Whole land from the sixth hour to the, to the ninth hour, but that's not our only witness this night. Look secondly with me at the second part of verse 45. Second part of verse 45 says this, a second witness, and the curtain of the temple was torn, torn in two. The first miracle, it, it happened at, at Calvary. It, it happened uh, uh, at, at the cross of Jesus, the, the darkness. And I'm sure that darkness was in Jerusalem as well. But the second one we see, it takes place at, at, at the temple. And, and what do we know about the temple? Well, it's, 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 it's the season of, of, of Passover. And, and if there's one pilgrimage that people make, it's, it's the Passover pilgrimage. 400,000 lambs, I read one time in, in studies, are sacrificed. How many people does 400,000 lambs represent being slaughtered for Passover? The activity and the worship and the, and the expectation and the anticipation that is taking place uh, uh, at the temple. And the word of God says that while Jesus is on the cross, bearing our sin and guilt and, and, and experiencing the judgment of God, it says that, that the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Mark's gospel, Matthew says, the curtain was rent from top to bottom. Again, another miracle that takes place, and to make sure that we know that it's God performing this miracle. God brings the darkness. God tears the, the curtain. And, and in the midst of that, he does. Now, what is this curtain and why? Well, we have some basic understandings for most of us. We understand, and I'm not going to go deep tonight, but there is the temple, the, the, the centerpiece of worship, if you will, for God's people over many, many years. And when most dwell in the outer courts is where people meet and where gather and things are going on. But there is this holy place, and there's a place where priests dwell, and they offer incenses, and they offer offerings, and they, and they do priestly functions in the holy place. And then there is the most holy place. The most holy place on the planet. The holy of holies. The only place post-tabernacling in the wilderness that we've ever spoke of, of God's presence dwelling. But it's, it's, it's the holy of holies. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwells. It's the place where there is the mercy seat. It's a place no one enters except the high priest and him only once a year on the Day of Atonement. There's the most holy place. And the holy place and the most holy place is, is separated by a curtain. 
And that's it. And it's a big curtain and it's 30 feet wide. It's 30 feet high and it's about five, six inches thick and it's ornately woven with many fabrics and things. And that's the only thing that separates. And in an instant, when Jesus is dying, in an instant, that curtain is rent from top to bottom. On the day that Jesus died. Now, before I get to what it means, I got to think, what was it like for those priests? What do you do with that reality? All of a sudden, the most fearful place on the planet has been ripped wide open. Nobody's doing this. This is instant death. Either God's going to kill you or somebody's going to kill you for doing what you did. No one does this. God does it. And all of a sudden, the Holy of Holies is exposed. What do priests do? What do priests say? How do you kind of cover that thing up? And on a day, priests were dealt with the reality, and some others might have been dealt with the reality of the temple curtain being rent in two from top to bottom. But what does it signify uh, for us? Um, Let me give you two things. The first is it's an end of all sacrifices. God brought an end, definitively and finally, an end to all sacrifices. Year after year after year after year, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals are slain by God's direction in the temple. No more. Jesus in, on the cross and offering his body as the last sacrifice for his people and for their sins. This was the dramatic end of the Old Testament sacrificial system. No more lambs to be slain for Passover. No more goats to be slain on the Day of Atonement. The Son of God had given himself as the final sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9, 26, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There won't be one more animal. One body for all time will be sacrificed, and it's enough. The body of Jesus Christ. God had opened the way to the secret place that could only be entered by the blood of a perfect sacrifice. Jesus was that perfect sacrifice. No more sacrifices. Secondly, the way to God was now open. The way to God was now open forever. Time of Moses, people denied any direct access to God. Back in the wilderness, in the wanderings, yes, pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, God's manifest presence, his Shekinah glory, showing that people could go out and see God's glory dwelling over the temple. But, but for the time, from that time on, that God dwelled in the most holy place, we don't have access to God. We got to have some priests that got to do some things on the outside. And then one guy's got to go in on the inside. But Jesus, on that day, top to bottom, this, this, this curtain is rent in two. And no more sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. The Son of God has given himself for this. Now we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, Hebrews 6.19 tells us. Now we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. This is the great end. 
This is the great work of God. We so often stop. We, we look at forgiveness and we cherish forgiveness and we should. But the great end of the work of Jesus on the cross is access to God. The great end of our salvation is not that we're forgi- just that we're forgiven, not that we just become a community of believers. The great end of our salvation is we've been restored to right relationship with God. We can be at peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus. We, we, we can have fellowship with God through the shed blood of Jesus. Our sins can be forgiven. Our righteousness can be imputed upon us. And the great end is we get God. And that's what the temple curtain displays for us. That's what it shows for us. It's been, what more do I got to show you? He rips it wide open and says, by faith, come on in. And that's what we see. We can draw near to God with true heart and full assurance of faith. God has opened the way for us to be close with him again. Just a single verse. I, I find myself come back to, coming to again, 1 Peter 3, 18. Um, Jesus died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the great one. We're righteous for unrighteous. Once and for all, why? That he might bring us into the holy of holies. He might bring us into right fellowship with God. We have experienced um, forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice alone. No more sacrifices. And we have access to God through Jesus' finished work on the cross. That's two witnesses. Let me share briefly one more. Third witness. Finally, one more. Verse 47. Verse 47. Here, please hear this witness tonight. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. I I, want to speak of of a centurion whose whose job it is to kill convicted criminals praises God and declares that Jesus was innocent. A, A pagan, unbelieving, Roman military man of influence and power praises God and declares this man was innocent. I want to begin by saying that there were other people there. In verse 48, we read, and all crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Now, I don't know what to do with all that. I don't think these people were repentant. I don't think they figured it out on their own. But they came to see something, and what they saw was a whole lot different than what they expected. And they were troubled in their hearts, and they were troubled in their minds, and what did this man say and do, and what did I just see? And they went home beating their breasts. There was a remorse. There was some sense of what just happened here but we don't, we don't know of any change. The Bible also says in verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They, they weren't changed. They kind of just were watching and they were sad and they can't believe that their lives just came to an end and here's the man that they put all their trust in and he's dying. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that they figured it out. And even after that, some still doubted. But this centurion, 
he was affected in a way that he publicly professes that Jesus was innocent. There, there's no sin in this man. In Mark's gospel, we read what the centurion says is, surely this man was the son of God. Stop for a minute. This man simply watched Jesus die, and he makes a claim and does something that no one else is, is doing. First, this, this man praised God. This man, the, the Bible says he, he praised God. People don't naturally praise God. Pagan people who kill people for a living, don't outwardly express praise to God. The sinful heart doesn't give glory to God. Something has happened to this man's heart to respond in this way. This man's going to lose his credibility. This man's going to lose his job. This man's going to lose the troops that he's, he's leading if he responds in this way, but he does. He recognizes something in Jesus and like the criminal next to him, he, he enters into a relationship um, in which he expresses praise to God. Now, I, I don't know what it is. I don't have any definitive word. I can read a lot of commentaries and kind of, let me just shake this out in just a few minutes and we close. Um, I simply want to say this tonight. He heard things that others may not have heard. He noticed things that maybe others didn't notice. I don't think it was the darkness. I don't think the temple curtain had any impact on this man whatsoever. I believe it was what Jesus said and how Jesus died. The only thing this man had was a front row seat. That's all he had. And it was his job to watch this man die. And I believe it's what Jesus said. And I believe it's what this man saw. The first words from the text in Luke we heard tonight, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them? Who says that? What dying man has any regard for those who are crucifying him? What, what manner of man is this? Forgiving his, his enemies? He, he's got something going on inside of him. He seems to be in control of these proceedings more than I am. The inscription. Could it be? Is this man really the king of the Jews? What has he done? Pilate wanted to release him, yet the Jews hate him and despise him. Why? What has he done? Has he claimed to be God? And here he is forgiving those who mock him and hand him over to be crucified. A criminal on his side defends him. We're getting what we deserve, yet this man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. The man asked him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today, this, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Who says that? Who says that? Could, could, he, could he be a, a, a king? Could he be the king? Does this man hold the keys of heaven and hell? 
He's dying on a Roman cross, but he seems at peace and certain that this is not the end, but rather the beginning of something more. In those final words, he calls out in a loud voice, no one, no one dying from asphyxiation calls out in a loud voice. No one. In six hours, his lungs are filled with fluid. He is gasping for air. No one calls out in a loud voice dying of asphyxiation, yet this man does. And he says, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. That word again, Father. He calls out to a father. Who does that? Why does he do that? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It's not as if his life is being taken. It's as if he's giving it. He's watched people die. It's his job. That's what he does. No one has died like him. He's in control. He's giving his life. He's innocent and he knows it. He is willingly, let all, willingly letting all this happen. He is forgiving the very people that are doing it to him. We know John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down of my own accord. I cannot say if this man was converted, but it does seem like he knew that Jesus was no ordinary man, and he openly professed who he believed him to be. He praised God. He professed him as the Son of God. It sounds like a third miracle to me, a spiritual miracle. The first Gentile to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that through his dying, he is bringing people into his kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. We have darkness. We have a temple curtain that is rent in two. And we have the profession of a centurion, an executioner, declaring this man to be the son of God. So, here we are in America, celebrating this man's death 2,000 years later. We put on a big fuss. To celebrate this man's birth, we gather here tonight, even as a um, gathering to testify to this man's death. He had no ordinary death, and he was no ordinary man. On the first Good Friday, there was darkness, evil, evil, sorrow, unspeakable sorrow, judgment. And the darkness signified that. There was a curtain temple that was torn in two. Just, this was it. This was the end. Once and for all, for all people, a sacrifice was being made, and we now have access to the Father. There was a centurion who was the first Gentile to say, surely this man is the Son of God. 
And tonight, by God's amazing grace, we gather here tonight and we can say together, surely this man is the Son of God. He lived. He died. And there is but one more thing for him to do. But that's for another time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for this good reminder. We pray that you would work in us a good sorrow, a good remorse, a right awareness of the cross of Jesus Christ. That I started at the beginning, I could just talk about how indifferent and how cold and how seemingly apathetic my heart has been this day, knowing I would have to stand before God's people and preach. And yet I went to work and I went about my day just so indifferent to Good Friday. The day Jesus died. I pray tonight you've just given us a, a look, a glimpse of the glory of the cross. And I pray that as we would leave, we would be exceedingly mindful and thoughtful of what amazing grace you've shown us and what riches there are in the wounds of Jesus. And you would help us to spend the rest of our days contemplating and studying and reflecting and marveling in the cross of Jesus Christ. Cause it to be so, Lord, we'll give you the thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.